I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's happiest podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dumbrellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have the Chair of Australian Literature at the University of Western Australia and the Director of the Westerly Research Group, a lecturer and an author, Tony Hughes-Daith. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Thanks, George. Oh, so I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. Yes, you're you're very comfortable over there in WA. So you're a uh, sunny and bright over there. <laughs> yeah, we're COVID-free. We're, we're we're in a bubble. We're in a bubble inside a bubble. Yeah. Look, I'm sure there's a. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be a. Actually, you, straight away, you as a person who's very much, you might be the most literary person I've had on potentially. Um, I'm guessing there's a lot of stuff coming out already about the, dealing with the pandemic and stuff like that in terms of literature. Is there any discussions around that yet, or are people like it's too soon still? We need time to figure this out. Yeah, I'm feeling there'd be people writing all kinds of um, you know pandemic novels and um, you know pan- pandemic pandemic sonnet sequences or, or whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, probably in a publish, publishing sense, um, it, it is a little bit soon for things to have appeared. Um, some have kind of uncannily predicted it, uh, like uh, Laura Jean McKay's novel, The Animals in That Country, which is about a kind of a pandemic, but was written before this pandemic. Perfect timing though, right? Because <laughs> that was like last year, I think you mentioned that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that's uh, it's a good novel, but you know, you know, pretty sort of important young Australian novelist, uh, and it just won the Arthur C. Clarke Science Fiction Award. It's kind of a pretty big deal, actually. It's not a huge amount of money, but uh, yeah, that that's pretty much the best uh, science fiction broadly considered novel in the world. That's a big deal. Like that's a. I didn't. I didn't realize that she'd won that uh, award. Is that? I like how you mentioned the fact it's not that much money. How much is? What's the award money for that? It's two thousand and twenty-one dollars. Like it, it's. The, I was reading about. She only it was only announced uh, yesterday, I think, or the day before. But apparently, like when it was first awarded, nineteen sixty-eight, that, that they they awarded one thousand nine hundred sixty-eight dollars. And they would just increase it by a dollar a year, which isn't exactly CPI. So, two thousand and twenty-one dollars is, um, you know, even if it's American dollars, it's not going to get you very far. That's but, criminal. Yeah. the highest yeah, yeah. award you can get in science fiction is two thousand two hundred twenty-one dollars. That that is a slap in the. I can't believe that. That I, that's a renowned. That's on the cover of 
so many major pieces of like science fiction through history <laughs> I've right. read. Like it's like the most prestigious. I can't. I'm yeah. so shocked by that amount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those dogs. Those yeah. dogs. Tell you what. Uh, thank you for the insight. I didn't know that. Um, okay. Well, I, I, you've already mentioned an Australian author. So I guess uh, we, you teach there at uh, UWA. You've studied literature or variations on it your whole life. Um, actually, before that, let's let's start with the book. We'll go from the book and then we'll jump around to everything else. So what? I know you picked like four to pick from, but I'm going to put pressure on you now. You're going to have to put one that I can then put in the uh, in the title, even though we can't mention the other ones as well. Uh, what is going to be your book of choice for today? I'll go with uh, Carpenteria. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's this kind of vast uh, epic, really, that was published in 2006 uh, by the um, Aboriginal writer Alexis Wright. She's been sort of an activist most of her life in the Northern Territory and, um, and kind of, um, I guess, Western Queensland and kind of from the Gulf Country. And, yeah, this book... Uh, you know, when it sort of appeared, it kind of kind of, kind of came out of nowhere. She did have uh, a previous novel, uh, Planes of Promise, but yeah, it was kind of um, yeah a huge deal. Um, it, it was written in a kind of magical realist style, which probably probably has become like a world style. Um, so you see magical realist novels really in China or Indonesia, and uh, they're often magical realist novels are often about really trying to bring together like the time of like the village, the old time with um, contemporary modernity, you know, like so magical realism tries to uh, make sense of that collision that's occurring all over the world in different ways where you've got people and like living in like huts, um, but with smartphones, you know, (laughs) so it's like, yeah, magical realism kind of, kind of tries to deal with that base. And, And that happens in, parts of Australia as well. Um, ah. So, yeah, it's cool. Like it's a book that, um, you know, kind of it starts in like a, I guess a shanty town on the edge of a, a kind of a redneck uh, Queensland town called Desperance and there's kind of it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strongly ironic novel. Like uh, so this town, Desperance, was set up you can't call it down desperate without it being ironic a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a kind of there's an element of desperation that kind of flows through everyone there. Um, but the town was set up as a port uh, back in the colonial era. This is explained in the book uh, for um, the cattle industry. They're going to export from there, um, and they put, they put this town on the edge of a kind of a river, and this river is going to be you know, kind of conduit for the the, the cattle and port but um, you know three or four years later there's a big storm and, and and the river just changes course dramatically and and spits out another like 20 k's east so this town is like now kind of nowhere uh, and and so that's kind of a that's a typical gesture in this novel so people have these grand plans they're going to do this they're going to build a mine they're going to you know and the country has other ideas you know it just changes its mind so People kind of, in this book, like people live on the surface of the world, but the world's really determined by these kind of spirits underneath and, and they're, they have their own views of things. Uh, and the Aboriginal people who live there kind of get that, but the white people just uh, really don't. Uh, I mean, getting it and, and dealing with it is two separate things. So the Aboriginal people are kind of just as um, kind of bounced around by the, you know, vicissitudes of nature uh, as the white people, but they're 
they're, they're a bit more accepting that this is just how the world is. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, it's just a fantastic novel in the way that kind of uh, unfolds in these these kind of crazy ways. Yeah, I mean that's uh you've you've mentioned it like. I actually never thought about the uh, idea of magical realism being a, a, a way to show that contrast between, I guess, in many ways, uh, more native or I, I, don't, I don't know how to phrase the word correctly, but more ancient methods versus the shiny modernity and like, yeah, showing that contrast. Because I guess in a weird way, now that I think about it, modernity is the magic coming into those places. And instead, you're just showing the reverse of that, which is kind of capturing the same thing by having it. Yeah, I never actually thought about that before, which... Yeah, yeah I mean, the old sort of Marxist idea thing. was that you would sort of, um, you know, progress through stages. You know, you'd be like um, hunter-gatherers and then you'd primitive agriculture and then, you know, de- develop cities and a working class, a slave period. You kind of move through these stages and capitalism and then communism. But, yeah, I mean, the, the reality of the way that, way that capitalism is kind of um, – is much more like a virus or a kind of a, a pandemic. It just sort of spreads through and it just hits people, it gets inside them, um, changes the way they desire and, and all these sort of things. And, yeah, I think magical realism replaced social realism, uh, you know, towards the end of last century as a world style to um, to cope with that that reality. Oh, okay. So you so said what was social realism before? Yeah, well, social realism was another world style, really, that kind of um, – kind of emerged, again, you've got, uh, you know, uh, a kind of way of writing novels that, that appears in, in Europe in the kind of late 18th and the early 19th century, which was trying to um, give expression to a new form of society. Like people um, weren't living in kind of feudal hierarchies anymore. They had kind of interior lives that, that demanded meaning. There was literacy. There was kind of change. And the novel form really kind of um, was attuned to that. And the novel form also represented different kind of social classes coming together in ways that kind of epic poetry and um, and verse dramas and things like that didn't. Um, so as that kind of un- unrolled around the world through colonialism really, um, yeah, you, you, you got social realist novels appearing in um, in India, in, in, in China, in South America, which were trying to do the same thing, like document um, the formation of societies, um, you know, capitalist societies, uh, you know, and social novels were kind of sagas usually. Or the Philippines, so social novels there, um, which tried to try to make sense of that that change process. But yeah, I think um, what happened by the, sort of the, the mid to late twentieth century was just uh, the acceleration of that and the. Um, and the, the, the craziness of the way in which modernity was was visiting the world wasn't in sort of stages, but you had this radical uh, collision between ancient and, and modern, um, which, you know, you're right, George, like it's there's kind of a magic there. You just can't, there's no, they're incommensurable. I mean, that's a classic, uh, was it Arthur C. Clarke that said uh, any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? I think it might have been actually him to tie that together. I think it might have been. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't explain how, how the thing in front of me works. I mean, there's some sort of – are you inside there, George? <laughs> <laughs> are we just voices coming out of someone who could be exactly. made up now? Someone could be listening to us and neither of us exist. That's, yeah. uh, that's some freshman uni stuff right there, I think. Um, the 
To go back to that though for a second, and uh, and this might just show my lack of knowledge, but I, I hope I'm not the only one. So magical realism in terms of what it is, is essentially uh, where it's the real world still, but there's just hints or elements of magic in it. So it's not overbearing. It's not fantasy. That's But that's kind of how I would summarize magical realism in my head. So if that's wrong, let me know. But what is? how do you define something as social realism? That's what I was kind of trying to say. How do you define that? Yeah, the different ways. I mean, I mean, one of the ways you could distinguish it is that, um, I mean, what we might say in, in my side of area is like causality. Like um, in social realism, econ- economics determines things. So a factory comes along and, um, you know, a company comes along, opens a factory, um, starts to pollute an area, people have to change their lives, they lose their livelihoods, they end up working in the factory and, and uh, but it, it, it would obey rules which we regard as rational. Um, in magical realism, you have magical causality. Um, mm. So, you know, to take the example from, um, from uh, Alexis Wright's Carpentaria, like, you end up with basically like a dual causality, like like rivers in um, in Australia, particularly like the Gulf Country, where you've got very f- high volumes of water across very flat country. Uh, they change course uh, all the time. Uh, happens all the time. Even my, my parents like grew up in Carnarvon in Western Australia, and 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 that the Gascoigne River just changed course after a cyclone and spat out you know, another kilometre away from where it used to. So that happens all the time and that's kind of, we would regard that as a natural process. But in in Alexis Wright's novel, that's um, that change of water course is the, uh, is the choice of the, of the creation spirit. So, uh, and, and that's allowed to sort of exist as a reason. You know, that's how the river changed course. On the one hand, you know, it's a natural thing, but another thing, it's a spiritual thing. So uh, magical realism often contain, I mean, that's a case where the events are probably equally explicable, but sometimes um, things happen in, in novels. Like there's a scene where the police officer who's kind of having a, a kind of dodgy affair with one of the girls in um, in the shanty town, and he's driving his car out and the car suddenly gets enveloped in spiderweb um is that happening is he having a delusion um how does he get out we're not sure but that's just sort of what happens you know so so things like that um you know wouldn't appear in a social realist novel you Mm. don't get um a a guy driving along and suddenly have his car covered up by giant spiders and spiderwebs you know so that's the that's uh, so when that first started happening, it was uh, quite a shock. It was quite scandalous. Like, um, I mean, the person who's generally credited with um, popularising the the mode of magical realism was uh, Marquez, the Colombian writer. And but yeah, it quickly kind of took hold. I mean, you could also you know writers like Gunter Grass or whatever was writing in a similar sort of time, but it really got really took off in the Anglophone world with Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. And, and 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 since then, yeah, there, as I said, there are examples all throughout um, the, the world literature. Yeah, I mean that's a to go for the. I love, I love that I'm talking to an actual literature, the chair of the Australian Literature for UDM. So you can explain things to me. So because I read Midnight's Children, I got to say that, like, and I think I was too young and I was too inexperienced because I never studied literature. Uh, that book was very difficult for me to wrap my head around reading it, and like just in terms of what was kind, of, it just didn't fit 
any sort of box that I could kind of put it in. It was very difficult for me to deal with kind of uh, uh, just because it felt very much about something other than what you were reading. <laughs> like it, like mm. very much so. And I, I, I didn't mind it, but it, like it was rich, evocative in terms of what it, how it portrayed things. But yeah, I was quite confused through it. And I've heard uh, uh, the satanic verse is even more difficult to figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens in, I haven't read satanic verses, but um um, you know, children, like w- one of the things that's perplexing about that novel is just um, it just starts. And, and actually, if if you if you read Midnight's tri- Children, and and it's the same same is also true of um, Carpenter. If you read it and then go go back after you've immediately after you've finished and read the first two chapters again, that makes sense. So, in other words, uh, the what what confuses you is that the first two chapters or whatever happen as if they've explained it all to you, but they haven't. So mm-hmm. they're mentioning names and people and things. Uh, and you've got no idea what you're talking. You know, you, did I, I missed the memo. Where, did I come late to this? And and, and basically it, that's what, again, in a funny sort of way in a, or a formal way, that's how, that's how, that's another way in which magical realism represents the onset of modernity. You know, it's not, it's not explained to you. There is no kind of subcommittee that gets delegation that gets sent ahead to your village. Would you like to sign up to capitalism? It has this kind of advantages and these kind of disadvantages. It's totally up to you. Like it just arrives, you know, bang, bang, bang. Um, and 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 they took like capitalism is talking capitalism, and you're trying to catch up frantically with its new entire rewriting of human value. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that actually is a, that's a valid point, I guess. I mean, if that's a choice, it's so funny how, like, I, I, as a reader, I'm always like, is this a choice they're doing it like this? But I mean, that's a very valid reading of that, I guess, that if they want to capture that feeling. Again, uh, it's above my pay grade of knowledge of how <laughs> to read this stuff. So uh, I find it interesting to, so, so interesting to hear this stuff. Um, the with the Carpenteria, and I guess you've mentioned it a few times now in terms of magical realism, I guess. But you've got the capitalism impact there on uh, kind of unbridled excess, and how it impacts everywhere, and kind of doesn't give you a say in it. Um, is there? I guess actually, firstly, is that something you've always felt? Is that was that something you grew into? Were you striding against capitalism in your, when you were younger and all that, or is it just an appreciation of just where we are now and looking around? I guess. I mean, I. Uh, no, I wasn't like born a Marxist or anything like that. Like, um, you know, I, I like everyone else. I grew up inside. Well, not everyone else, but like, like, like everyone in, in the developed world, at least. Like, I grew up inside capitalism. Um, I, I, I think I did have a view that I didn't understand the world I was living in, um, and it, it didn't make sense. And I did feel I, I was as as a child, and and really, um, yeah, throughout my adolescence and, and early adulthood quite acutely conscious or had the strong feeling that everyone knew what was going on and I didn't, you know, like like the world wasn't, you know, like I was seeing the same things as everyone but I didn't have the same uh, feeling of it making sense that they seemed to evince, you know. So, um, yeah, perhaps that did that send me down a particular path of intellection, you know, like of trying to um, e- explain things or think about why things are the way they are. And maybe it does make me sort of um, a bit more, um, you know, attuned to feeling, you know, that, that there, that there's uh, a system in play, um, which, which, which happens kind of before we arrive. 
uh, and we arrive into it and pretend we know what's going on. Uh, I mean, mostly unconscious of, of that. So, yeah, I mean, I th- and when I see that in novels, um, you know, like Carpentier, I, I recognise it, I guess. Um, so it's not like I'm, I go in looking for, I'm using capitalism as a kind of shorthand. I mean, you call it colonialism or you call it, I mean, whatever you want to call it, like it's clearly um, what's making the world go round at the moment uh, for the most part. So, but yeah, what you see in, in magical realism is what this looks like from the village, you mm. know? Um, yeah, it's not like they, they have their own systems for understanding things. Um, you know, they, they assimilate it um, mm. as best they can and they're also changed by it. So you get this kind of uh, encounter, I think, in magical realism. Yeah, no, that's a... Yeah, and in the end, everything gets subsumed by whatever whatever it is. Capitalism is a shorthand for it, but yes, this global globalization. I don't know. Um, the I, I, that's funny. Although, and also, just to note, that does kind of sound like you were born a Marxist, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I definitely, uh, I definitely be. Yeah, if someone was uh, doing the quality control on that, they would have definitely put a little uh, a note on me. Yeah. Propensity. Ticking a few cliches of being the literary head of a university. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah. you're everything the right wing is worried about. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, and Jack, uh, oh, so, oh, there's too many, so many things I want to ask about. Okay, let's start with this. Firstly, uh, because... Well, actually, focusing specifically on the book and just very one aspect of it, in terms of the writing, uh, because you, again, are looking at this from someone who's got such a vast experience in literature, essentially. So I, I, am, I might be putting you too highly on a pedestal here, so tell me if I'm wrong and you don't know what's going on, but I feel like you would be able to appreciate. Like, so what makes – does that part stand out in Carpentera as well? Is that something that's noticeable or distinct or is that more – The writing. It's just good, yeah. It's just good and the actual thematic and storytelling is actually the best part. Yeah, the writing is um, is quite striking. Um, there, um, it, it's it, it's it's a mixture of things. Like it, it, there are there are passages within it which are utterly uh, beautiful. Um, there, there's a strange way in which words are kind of, to to my sort of pedantic way of thinking, misused. Uh, and I wondered about the way the editors kind of just let some of that just be. You know, just just slight odd usages of words which but yeah i kind of like the way it hasn't been regularized um yeah it's quite it's it has it's raw and i don't want to um kind of in any way uh um downplay the 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 brilliance of this book like it is uh in every in almost every way you could could uh esteem a book i think this is a great book (laughs) really great book like it's beautiful uh it's conception it's uh profundity um, but also, yeah, the lyricism of the writing is, you know, there are times that, are, yeah, it's, it's quite mesmerising. You can go through a 20 or 30-page passage where, um, you know, maybe one of the characters is on the, on the gulf at night on a boat, you know, being kind of talked to by magical fish and stars and, it's, you know, it's, it's dazzling um, and hypnotic and, and you, you feel so kind of born away. Uh, and yeah, I think the the writing is yeah. I've not I've not seen anything quite quite like it in Australia. So um, yeah, it, but it's challenging as well. Like it's not um, you know it's it's it, it's easy to get lost in the book. And I think the way I tend to think of that is the book is it's non Cartesian. You know, it it doesn't it doesn't 
happen in kind of uh, normal forms of space and time, <laughs> you know, it kind of happens in these uh, other more elliptical ways of uh, being. Right. Okay. I mean, that's a. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm super intrigued now because I've got to be honest. For me, uh, it, it is a black mark on my reading, and I've tried to up it recently. I've got a, a few more that I've done, but uh, yeah, my my Australian literature side of things is not as deep as it should be, which I think probably a lot of people say the same sort of stuff. Um, so I, I'll definitely like you, you've sold me on this. I want to check it out. Um, the uh, as you're describing that, and this is I, I almost don't want to go into this because it might sound off-putting to people who might want to read the book as well, or like <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but this kind of can speak to you as well because basically you, stu- you you've studied literature again. You're the head of the, the chair of literature for the UWA, so I'm guessing you're always deep into books from young. Is that a fair assumption? I mean, I I, I wasn't what you'll call a voracious reader. Like like my mum and my sister will just read books. Um, you know, I guess you would, you know, you would say they're sort of trashy books or whatever, but they just keep reading them. They always, then they just go through them, churn through them. I was always like a slow reader, you know, so things would always take, and I still am really. Uh, so I'm, I would like Carpenteri is a big commitment for me. So, you know, it's like, you know, it's going to take me a, a couple of weeks to sort of work through it. But um, so, yeah, I, I've always been attracted to language and literature, but yeah, in terms of the, Different kinds of readers. I'm probably like a, I'm like a, a sort of a slow reader who sort of sits with it and kind of moves along at my own pace. I mean, even a novel like this, I, I can't, I'm, I'm being forced in my current position to be a bit more, you know, like current. <laughs> but often I trail along. Like I really only got into this book probably sort of ten years after it was published, and. Um, yeah, maybe I'm, I also get kind of put off by hype and yeah, oh, who does? I like it all to settle so down a little bit and then so and then some of it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, in this case, it's like it's not. But you want to be able to kind of come to your own appreciation without being forced to. So, yeah, it was worth the wait. Um, I have always been interested in, in in books, but I think I've always been, I said, not not like this hungry voracious reader, but I think. More than books, I suppose I'm interested in meaning, and um, and books have meaning in them, and and I think I'm also interested in like, you know, as I sort of hinted before, like the parts of life that that people don't talk about, you know, that are just sort of not not necessarily because they're, they're embarrassed, but maybe a little bit, but but mainly because they're just hard to talk about. They don't fit sort of categories, and I find like that's what I like about literature. Because literature you can read, and and you're the, It'll, it'll there'll be a moment in a poem or something like that, and you're like, yeah, I have had that feeling. No one's ever named it before, but you just have, you know. So I kind of look for those sort of, yeah, that that's kind of what drives me in my my encounter with literature. I, yeah, it's a kind of truth, really, but it's not captured anywhere else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that 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 makes sense, and I guess like as part of that, and this is what this is where I find it because even with Carpenterian, I'm not saying uh, I don't know where it fits into the. Like, <laughs> Into the scheme of things, but essentially, like, uh, I think there's like quite a big shift. How to say this again? Basically, you've got plot novels, and then you've got literary novels, which sometimes can be quite loose, not as plot based, and more about moments or language or themes, like you're saying. Um, and it sounds like those were always the ones that appealed to you, even when you were younger. There wasn't like a development towards it. You always kind of preferred those maybe ones there. Um, is that is that a fair thing to say, or is that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean I, when I guess, I'm saying that? Yeah, sense? I think so, yeah. I mean, because um, people always, when, whenever I um, 
I'm reading something, they say, what's it about? And and you're right, some some books aren't really paraphrasable in that way, like you can't just say what they're about. Um, I, I, I've been, attra- I'm always, a, I guess I'm attracted to books where I don't know what they're going to be about or to put that in the opposite way, like I'm, I'm turned off by books where I know what's going to happen. But after I've read the first paragraph, I'm like, I know where this is going. Um, and, and, and again, like that, that makes me a bit strange. A lot of people like that. And, um, and again, like sometimes, um, you know, genres, you know, some people like, oh, I like dragons and whatever, or I like crime <laughs> novels or, you know, I like rom- historical romance or, you know, some people have kind of, yeah, I kind of. I mean, yeah. I feel vaguely dismissed. Yeah, people like dragons or whatever. <laughs> like look, <laughs> I don't mind the dragon. Myself, I take umbrage to this, but uh, kids. yeah, look, I, I like I like the Game of Thrones just as much as the next person, but you know. <laughs> uh, but I suppose when I'm when I'm sitting down to read a book, I'm looking for something different, and mm. but you know, oddly enough, like um, you know, in something like Carpenteria, quite a lot happens. Like there is a lot of plot. You know, they're, they're crazy things. It's, it, it would take you a long time to, to describe everything that happened. Um, so there is plot, but it's not its not plot probably in the way that you mean of, a, you know, uh, a marriage plot or a, mm. you know, sort of a crime plot or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just uh, I'm doing stuff because it's interesting to me. Uh, and again, I always wonder where uh, nature versus nurture all that stuff. But essentially, it seems to me like a lot of book readers – seem to slowly, like, and that's what I'm wondering, some seem to gravitate that way, but a lot just seem to like it when it's, like, the ones who are the most avid that I've had on as well, they seem to be the ones that, like, really like the stuff which is a bit, uh, I don't know, it's, the, it's weird saying literary because you can have literary works which are more plot-driven, but essentially like that, yeah, where it's more, less easy to define, let's put it that way. Yeah, more thematic and stuff like that, I guess. I kind of want to be surprised. Like, yeah. Uh... And, yeah, the more you read, the harder it is to be surprised. So, yeah, you, you do kind of – it's it's like a kind of – I don't know. It's maybe like a thrill-seeking thing where you, you're kind of like, whoa, I did not – I've not I've not seen that before, you know, and that's that's what I kind of live for when I read. Um, I mean, I, that sometimes – I mean, the good thing about my job is like sometimes I sort of – I'll be teaching a, a, a book because – it seems like I should, like it fits the thing and, and I, I wouldn't have chosen it maybe. And, uh, but then I do read it and it's really good. <laughs> so I'm not always the best, best judge of these things. Like I believe in arranged marriages. <laughs> That's true. They're less of a commitment though. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> no, no. Yeah. Just cause I guess I'm currently going through this journey myself a little bit weirdly. I, uh, and this is, uh, this is more <laughs> just, I recently, even though I'm far too late to the party and it's, considered so there's a specific type of person that enjoys it but i recently actually uh sat down and read some david foster wallace for the first time when i was american not australian all that but it made me like i've now started going through all of his writings in terms of the which is quite dense some of it and i was like ah and because because he's got non-fiction where he actually talks about what he's doing in a way it's actually making me just have a new appreciation for that more complex literature which i always dabbled with but i never really like sat down and yeah, because it can be a slog sometimes, but I feel like it's, especially with him, I was reading, I was like, this is, yeah, it's something I've never seen before, I guess, for me. Yeah, so was, uh, that's why I'm going through this journey myself. That's why I find it interesting. Um, yeah, I was pretty, um, I was also pretty late to that party. Like, uh, And I've only read uh, Infinite Chest, uh, but um, 
you know, that's quite a long book and that, that's, that was pretty, pretty involved. Uh, but yeah, it was, I liked it too. Yeah. Oh no, that's not true. I've read, um, I've read the posthumous novel, um, which was about like a tax department in Georgia, like not, not, you know, not the immediate yeah. kind of subject of literature, but yeah, I, I liked him as well. Uh, I mean, the parts of him which feel a bit uh, twee, and um, but but then there, yeah, there are moments which are kind of just heartbreaking uh, yeah. as well. So yeah, I think I, I think he's a again, it's, he's a kind of a wild writer, uh, and you know, one yeah that you can um, yeah you feel like you are on a you're in a different planet, and, mm. and it's they do things differently there. That, 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 that's what I mean. So I, I, I obviously they're all different. So I'm not saying they're the same at all. But yes, it seems like uh, that's why I, I'm more primed right now to appreciate, let's say, a novel like Carpenter potentially than I maybe I was six months ago because of it. Um, the a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So uh, alongside that, actually, firstly, since we didn't really clarify it, so what exactly is it you do there at uh, UWA? What's kind of your role in general? Well, in general, I, I, I'm a lecturer in literature, so um, with a specialty in, in Australian literature. So on a day-to-day basis, like I teach a variety of courses, like um, I teach quite a lot of screen texts. I, I, I teach a unit called uh, Netflix, F-L-I-C-K-S, uh, cinema and long-form television. So let me just look at uh, the 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 drama that occurs in in the in televisual form so all right so not book related that's yeah yeah right. i mean again like as i said i'm i, I am i do like book but books but I, i'm not actually just interested in meaning so uh and, and i also feel like you know i want to be where meaning is happening and mm. if you know if i was living in the 16th century maybe that would be like the globe theater or something like that but right here right now 2021 a lot of that's happening in streaming services and yeah, there's some pretty high quality uh, narratives and, and stories and story worlds kind of emerging there. So I enjoy that. Um, yeah, it's a different kind of um, um, text and way, way to work with the things. Um, but I'm inter- I also teach uh, kind of literature and the environment and I'm kind of really interested in the relationship between literature and place. So, I mean, my, the, the book that I wrote maybe a, a couple of years ago was about um, 
the, the wheat belt of Western Australia and how that was formed. And I kind of told the story of the creation of the wheat belt in WA uh, through the 20th century through the lens of, of creative writing about it. So I kind of used literature as like a, well, as a kind of witness to the event of the of the wheat belt. So that's another kind of thing that I, I'm really interested in and probably an area that, that probably, def- well, that kind of approach defines me in, in a certain sort of way in terms of how I approach Australian literature. And I think that's probably how I'd be known by my colleagues in the field of Australian literature as someone who's interested in place and literature. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I feel uh, as you're saying that, and I was going to bring up the fact that you'd written that book because it does look uh, – it's it sounds like – because those are other people's like, – different creative writing pieces from different people throughout the years, and you've kind of uh, put them together to show the wheat belt and how it's changed over that time. Is that right? Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, firstly, I guess – actually, before we go there, what's the wheat belt? Yeah, so, like – yeah, it's a term we use in, in WA, but I mean, in a sense, every state has what what you call as a wheat belt, which is a it's basically a, a grain growing region. So, um, what normally defines a grain growing region in, in Australia is a, is a rainfall um, kind of line. So, in WA, that so to get wheat growing, you don't want too much water. You don't want and you want it to fall at the right time, you don't want it too little. So basically in WA and probably all over Australia, the wheat belts that appeared firstly in South Australia, uh, Western New South Wales, uh, Northern Victoria, uh, South uh, Western Queensland, um, they're basically between the 10 and 20-inch rainfall line. So that the, the, those are all wheat belts in the sense that there's a belt of, of rain <laughs> Uh, that's optimal for mm-hmm. uh, for the growing of annual crops. Uh, so in Western Australia, that was like the southwest, really. Uh, not, um, so there's a kind of a – again, if you just like Google Earth Australia, you'll notice like a sharp line uh, running basically uh, between uh, Geraldton and Esperance and everything to the sort of s- southwest of that. Um, except for the the very coastal fringe, is kind of the wheat belt. So that's an area of land that's probably um, as large as Britain, uh, and and that was all cleared uh, in probably two thirty year periods in the twentieth century, um, from nineteen hundred to nineteen thirty, and then immediately after the war, from say forty five to seventy five. Um, so so my book wasn't really like how the wheat belts changed, but more like how the hell did we get the wheat belt? You know, like it's like it's a sudden event. Like what this this stuff's like the the bush that was cleared, that's been there for millions of years. Like we haven't had glaciers or vo- volcanic eruptions or anything. It's just as the continents drifted around, these same species have been growing and becoming more diverse. So like biodiversity of the southwest of WA is like the equivalent of a rainforest canopy, you know. It's like uh, there's an incredible amount of species and that was just sort of, bulldozed out of existence uh and, and i tried to i guess change the time scheme where that instead of being oh generations of farming checkerboard of fields you know kind of natural i, I said like, this is like a shocking sudden violent event uh and I, yeah. again i tried to take advantage of literature's capacity to say things that aren't said otherwise uh to to, to register that event I mean, it's it's when you think of it in that scale, the size of Britain and like natural habit, natural diversity, and just destroyed. That's yeah. 
it's hard to like. Yes, progress is great, but it, it is it is a uh, yeah. It's hard to look at that and see it's a good thing. Mm. Um, so on that note, uh, because you're talking about that, I noticed that, yes, you do have an interesting environment and then your choice of Carpenteria as well. And, uh, some of the other books, which we can go into at some point as well, um, with indigenous communities. Uh, it's funny that your, uh, your, the things you like, especially in literature really seem very Australian literature. Is that a fair thing to say? Like, as in, I feel like a, a, a interest in both the land and in indigenous communities. I know that's probably, there's a lot of places, maybe I'm showing my own. Australia-centric view, but I feel like those are two issues that are very, very much a part of Australian culture in a way because it's such both, both basically both for crimes we're committing against it even now. But like, it feels like that is a big part. Of, is that like, is that a fair thing to say? I don't even know if that's accurate about Australian literature. And like, I don't know. Can you speak to that? Is that something that you noticed yourself? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Actually. Um, that they are kind of central elements of Australian literature. And, and I mean, why they're central elements of Australian literature is, is, is reflective really of, of Australia's history as a, as a settler colony. So settler colonies are, um, a, a kind of forms of colonies that, that, uh, are built by appropriating land. So basically, um, what you get in the settler colony is, um, you know, people moving in from another country. They're taking land that belongs to Indigenous people uh, and they set up their farms and whatever else. And that's the way the colonization sort of proceeds. I mean, there are other kinds of colonies, like plantations and whatever, but that's the way settler colonies work in Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada and South Africa. So um, it began with land. And, and it kind of it, it remains with land. Obviously, um, there's there's all sorts of ways in which there's a kind of um, contest of belonging that in which so in which land is still central. So as people come from other countries, again, like from England, particularly in Ireland, the, the kind of initial I guess Anglo-Celtic. Uh, migration pattern that defined settler colonialism in Australia till 1950 or whatever, that that was a contest over land in a material sense, uh, but then it also became a, a, a contest of who belongs in the country. And so there was a whole mythology that was developed in Australia around um, connection to land. Um, the problem is that we stole it. So that's the that's the major that's the major problem, right? So that the, the, all that's a key dynamic in Australian literature. It does have the effect, which uh, can't be entirely accidental, of kind of uh, sidelining um, um, Australia's migrant country in the post-war period. You know, um, and there's a great essay by Nam Um uh, Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, I'll explain. I'll let Namlay explain because he explains it quite, quite well, I think, uh, and then I can I can spin it uh, if need be. But he says, like, he, I think it was text did a series of writers on writers, and, and Namlay was asked to, he's a Vietnamese um, um, Australian writer, uh, famous for a book called The Boat. Um, so he's, he's, a, he's a real, he's a smart guy, right? Like he, uh, he's a lawyer, and then he, he went to go and um, – took up like the most prestigious writing program in America. Oddly enough, it's called the Iowa 
Writers Program. It's one of the first that was created in America in the 60s, I think. Uh, so a lot of, you know, great up-and-coming hot young authors go there and he, he went there. And um, But it's kind of got a bit quiet, must must be said. But so it was a bit surprising when this came out maybe last year or the year before. So Namale's asked to write on David Maloof. Maloof has written the kind of Australian literature that I've just described, you know, about, you know, uh, being in Australia, set, setting uh, colonial times, um, um, and the settlers' connection that, to the land rather than anyone else's. Yeah, exactly. Set, settler, set, settler connection to land, encounters with Aboriginal people. So these kind of things, you know, that that provide some of the central coordinates for Australian literature. Um, and Namlay's kind of his his approach was first of all to say, well, I, I can't remember. He went to. Geelong Grammar or some some fancy school in in Melbourne is like a scholarship kid and um, and it, it, he disdained Australian literature. He was, kind of, he was forced to study it. It wasn't real literature. They were much better. Him and his friend had kind of lists of who were the best. And and when he came across Maloof, he was like, actually, this guy's all right. <laughs> like this guy can actually write. Um, so, but then you know he sort of explained a little bit more about his his life and 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 then. He, how he's often expl- forced to explain himself, you know, as like, you know, someone who was who was taken in as part of the the Vietnamese um, kind of migrant intake and all that sort of thing, and and Harry now, in reflection, probably in his late thirties, I don't know how old he is exactly, kind of thinks about Maloof and Maloof's concern with these things, and he says, well, for us who are non-white Australians. Like the way the Australians regard the bush as this kind of hostile thing that they have to fight and overcome, that's how we regard whiteness. Like whiteness is our bush. <laughs> so it's sort of like, yeah, that was a kind of a nice uh, decentering of that basic thing. But yeah, in terms of me myself, like I probably have, um, I probably have stayed in that basic um, set of coordinates around land and and environment and. And that that now in a post Marbo context is is and has to be um, also you know encounters with Aboriginal people and what what the hell they think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's a rich topic. Don't get me wrong. Firstly, like obviously, like both the indigenous rights and the environmental rights, and it's something which is uh, relevant always, especially here in Australia. Um, on that point, uh, actually, two different things. First, firstly, uh, is your background like with your family? Like, are you are you? 50 generations back Australian? Is that something which is like part of you as well? Like I'm just wondering if that fed into it or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit. Not No, I'm not, you know, and no one is. Like you might be, you, you'd be doing well to trace one tiny kind of filament, you know, four, four generations in Australia as a settler, right? Um, but, I mean, on my dad's side, no, he was just, that, he just migrated like, after the war from England with his parents. Um, um, on my, on my mum's side, she, um, she was actually born in Hong Kong, which is a bit strange, but, um, but her dad was born in Wajin, which is a wheat belt town. So, and, and, and she will often kind of invoke various ancestors that have been in Western Australia for, you know, since the 1830s or whatever. But it doesn't mean myself, like I, I never. I had the, my own personal experience was was actually one of moving a lot as a, as a child. Like my 
my father worked for the Department of Defence and I was kind of, I went to like 10 different schools in um, three countries and um, so I always felt kind of like uh, dislocated, you know, Um, and, and I think I did and I guess with my own sort of like kind of white privilege and um and the fact that I was born in Australia kind of I always had that in my that I could call on and, and no one could say I didn't have it. But also I felt like it was completely empty. Like it didn't contain anything. Um nothing meaningful. I, I didn't I didn't yeah I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere because, you know, I lived in Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne uh, Munich, Washington DC, Perth, and you know, and, and every year I was at a new school and meeting new people. So I just, at a subjective level, I felt um, that I didn't belong anywhere. And I think, at a subjective level, that that's probably what's driven me to do this kind of thing. You know, to sort of it is a sort of a root seeking thing, and I'm aware of the problems of that, and you know that I come up against some basic you know, violence and, and contradiction and uh, in Australia's story. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's interesting. Yeah, looking fascination, the most rooted, rooted of like things, which is like obviously the land and the Indigenous community's uh, relationship with it, um, which yeah, it's also funny that I guess, technically you're just as much of a migrant as uh, Nam by the sound of it yeah, in terms yeah. of coming in yeah. as well. Um, actually, just quickly uh, on a slight tangent from this, um, I was kind of guessing about the fact that this is like a very Australian type of literature because like, you know, I would look at like what would be an example of like a UK type of literature? Is, is, is there one like as, as clear kind of as this or is there one for like America or like I feel like America – would be probably their most distinct features is maybe the African-American side of things. But like, yeah, I don't know. Does UK have something like that where you're like, look at it, you're like, oh, these are very British things they're dealing with. <laughs> are they also dealing with the guilt of colonialism but from the people back home? <laughs> they don't feel guilty. <laughs> as far as I can tell. They actually blame us. Like, God, you guys are terrible. Uh, I was like, no, actually, that was you. <laughs> um, I look – there's a clear what, what what I think the pat where you find the pattern actually is is set of colonial literatures and, and and whether that's South Africa or Australia New Zealand Canada the United States they all they all have a pat they all have um, a version and then even you see it in South American literature in a certain sort of way like a version of kind of um, land based literature so. So again, I think that's not accidental. The material conditions were land-based. That's what created the the, the rationale for the for the colonisation, and the literature is land-based. I mean, I guess typically an English type novel is class-based, and that's a and and that's what you tend to notice a little bit in in English novels is that the presence of class, like um, even something like D. H. Lawrence, you know, you kind of. The, there's the feeling of the working class, like what, you know, it's a sense of um, being kind of uh, abject or excluded or kind of, um, yeah. you know, always feeling kind of too big for your boots if the minute you step out of your place. So I think that that tends to typify um, 
British literature. Okay, I'm speaking with, in wild generalizations. Oh, they're not all thinking doing the same thing. I think that could always Yeah, be but even something people. like, you know, Agatha Christie, you know, there's a sort of sense of a country house and a hierarchical society. Uh, and then you have writers like, you know, like Ishiguro, uh, who's sort of has a Japanese origin, but lived in Britain most of his life. And he writes kind of very, uh, kind of self-consciously and parodically English novels. Uh, which, again, the, the key thing is not place so much as cl- class. Mm. But yeah, in Australia, we, we pretend we're classless. Um, and we invest imaginatively in, in place. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, and like maybe we were slightly less so, especially 50 years ago, or maybe when these people were writing, the class side of things was. And I mean, and also I think, I mean, Australia as a land is it, like, I know everywhere's unique, but Australia is like especially unique as a land. Like, as in, it's, it's almost another planet compared to almost anywhere else on the planet. Like, as in, it, it's so di- separate and it's like just from its flora and fauna, both are just like they just developed their own stream for who knows how long. It's, it feels very distinct in its own way, which I guess you could probably say about every continent, but it just Australia feels a bit different. I don't know. Like, what the hell are kangaroos? <laughs> I always think that, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. No. no, you're right. It, it, no, I think that's, that's true. I mean, it, and in all sorts of ways, it has a kind of a, even in, in terms of human societies, but, but yeah, biotically and geologically, it, 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 you know, it, it is actually ancient, you know, so mm. in ways that, again, are probably inconceivable, um, for most Europeans, like, I mean, most of Northern Europe and most of Northern America was covered by an ice sheet until about 10,000 years ago. So that's like not even in existence, not, not visible. You know, uh, so it's mostly, you know, what they regard as their ancient forests and so on are just sort of opportunistic weeds that colonised it, you know, in in very recent time. Like by by Australian, you know, this like, it's so recent. So it's it's there's often a complete misunderstanding. And and again, colonists to Australia have kind of, they've they've struggled to um, comprehend the the age of Australia and that they tended to regard it as either kind of lost in the midst of time uh, or incredibly young, you know, just suddenly, you know, because only Europeans only kind of stumbled onto it like a, a couple hundred years ago. But, yeah, it's, it is it is unique in lots of ways. And, and then we've got this odd situation of a kind of, an, you know, and an, um, I guess Anglo culture, part of the Anglo world, in Asia, more or less, or the Asia Pacific region, and 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 so there's all sorts of weirdness around that as well. Yeah, no, that that uh, I mean that's that's a it's an interesting developing relationship that is yeah it's going to redefine what Australian is in another fifty years surely that closeness. Um, actually, because of the books you selected as well, and you've mentioned it a few times in terms of the indigenous communities and stuff like that. Um, that, uh, just because, yeah, one of the other works you've mentioned was a uh, black work, which you, you might've brought up as a favorite, uh, which looks like it kind of tackles that side of things. Is that right? Uh, from the. Yeah. That's book by Alison Whitaker. She's a, she's a lawyer, a uh, legal scholar and, the, and a poet. And, um, yeah, I really like this, 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 uh, book. Yeah. It's maybe from I think, 2017 or something, but, um, just been getting into it recent, recently. And again, it's quite, um, challenging sort of book. It's kind of what we call language poetry, which, um, yeah, I think all poetry is language poetry, but language poetry as, it, as, it, as it's called as a movement, uh, going back in America in the sort of late sixties kind of, um, 
made, made language kind of visible. So it's off, some of our poems are written, uh, you know, you know, not not in conventional lines. They'll be sort of kicked to one side or in, in intersecting kind of columns and things like that. So uh, on the page, it looks a bit um, forbidding or kind of confusing. Um, but yeah, there's some brilliant moments in it. Like there's a, she's got these poems, um, and they're basically based on um, legal judgments. So the, there's one on the uh, Trevorrow case, which was a stolen children's case in South Australia. Another one on the Mizdu case, which is a death death in custody that happened in Geraldton, terrible case in West Australia, and and then the Marbo case. And the poem consists of this. Uh, the title says, 49 most uh, commonly occurring three-word phrases in these legal judgments or legal um, accounts. And so it just lists them. Uh, so in order of frequency, um, three words uh, from, say, the Marbo judgment. So it's just done by a computer. Computers kind of pick this out uh, and you'll get these phrases um, listed. I don't know why she chose 49. She probably, maybe she says somewhere, but uh, the 49 most in order. Uh, and it's it's just so uncanny. These three words, it, first of all, it reads like poetry, actually. It reads like beautiful poetry, created completely by a computer <laughs> set to work on a legal judgment. And the, the reason why it works as kind of poetry is like, the phrases, three words is just enough to, to kind of evoke something. And there'll be sort of recurrent concepts like uh, uh, appropriation, uh, stolen, uh, land, injury, and, and you get all these kind of words that are Lord's way of speaking about the historical injustices of Aboriginal people. Uh, their, their way of um, either, well, their way of... Um, because law is law addresses harm, so it's their way of of uh, designating the harm that's occurred in legal language, so that it can be processed by the law, and then various languages that then convert those to legal ideas, and then uh, forms of redress. So those those three word things uh, create a kind of picture, uh, and it's in un- absolutely uncanny how how with only a tiny bit of imagination. Uh, you, you read those three word, uh, three words, uh, li- the list of three word um, phrases, and how closely it outlines, very precisely, uh, the relationship of Aboriginal people to the Australian legal system. So it's, it's you wouldn't think something so simple um, would produce such a um, such a decisive picture. Uh, so I thought that was just a stroke of absolute genius uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's kind of devastating because yeah. you're like, because, I mean, yeah, like in the Miss Do case, like quite a lot of the commonly um, used words are just a redaction, you know, which is usually a police officer's name or something like that. Mm. Uh, so you get these black boxes as one of the, you know, recurrent. That's, uh, yeah. So even that's quite eloquent in its own mm. sort of way. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, I could be wrong about this. I mean, there's, uh, I think there's still yet, I think that there, this guy who's been charged in um, South Australia, I think might be in trouble, but um, I don't think there's been anyone actually convicted, a police ever convicted of um, of killing an Aboriginal person uh, in Australia. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I, I 
Well, that's just one thing that she does in that book. It does all sorts of other things. Mm. She does a really cool rereading of the um, the kind of iconic and, and and sort of cliched now Australian poem, um, My Country by um, Dorothea McKellar, which is like, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, rugged mountain range, ranges, droughts and flooding plains. You know, so it's kind of that a kind of Qantas ad of, um, of, of Australian cliches, which she sort of, um, yeah, kind of tweaks and twists and, and um, instead of calling it a love of country, she calls it a love like Dorothea's. Like she wishes she had a love like Dorothea's. And, uh, yeah, it's, I just think it's really, it's smart poetry. It's, yeah, it's challenging. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, that does sound yeah, it sounds. I I might need a bit of practice before I can properly unpack that one. <laughs> it's, it sounds like really good. Did the um uh did the indigenous side of things was that another part that came hand in hand with your environmental care of Australia, or was it like something that was on its own, or like because obviously one kind of goes with the other? But I, I do wonder that, and that'll probably be the last thing we do before I, I've dragged you. I've left you here for an hour. Hopefully, it's not too long for you. But um, yeah, uh, is the, those two things kind of go hand in hand for with you, or was it kind of just separate? Yeah, I'm not sure if they. I'm trying to think. I'm trying trying to imagine how that that. that I think in terms of. I mean, I, I think the important thing about Aboriginal writing uh, is, is it's it's really nothing to do with me. Like, like they've announced themselves. Like you know, like all 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 all, all I've done, and I'm not alone. Is is just you know listened. Like so, like it's not like. Um, they needed any help from me like that they've come and like Alexis Wright just writes the novel so you know in terms of living in Australia now it's just um you know if you're doing my job which is like trying to trying to keep some kind of finger on the pulse of Australian literature and where it's all going that's just a a massive thing right now uh I mean it's it's been building. Uh, it's had a few couple of generations, I think. But I mean, right now, there's just an amazing amount of, um, you know, in, indigenous writing, and it's not just indigenous writing. There's indigenous publishing, indigenous indigenous editors. You know, so it's kind of and, and there's a full in, in indigenous intelligentsia now. Uh, they, they argue amongst themselves. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm listening. I'll, I'll talk. Um, you know, got Indigenous friends and so on that, that bait these things with. But, you know, it's kind of happening. Um, the, the 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 environment thing, again, probably, I, you know, that's that's something that's been a kind of a settler obsession and, and, um, and it hasn't gone, but we can't, it now has to contend with the fact that it, um, it was always uh, part of the appropriation and not, not to the side of it, you know, like the appreciation of nature was kind of had a proprietary dimension. So I guess just, you know, ethically and, and of where we stand right now, they do go hand in hand. Yeah, it just I feel like it's almost like you can't enjoy nature now without feeling guilty, <laughs> which I don't think is fair. Like, you know, it's yeah. fair in terms of, yes, it's to be aware of, but I feel like, yeah. It sounds, you know, it sounds like you've yeah. almost ruined environment appreciation for yourself. You're like, this is... Now I yeah, know I, don't, I don't think it needs to be that way, honestly, and I don't think most Aboriginal people would would want that either. It's just kind of there's a bit of a process, you know. You just got to, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's hard 
you know, you can't go traveling without feeling guilty. You can't drive a car without feeling guilty. So in some ways it's, we do just, we, we acknowledge our complicity in these things and we're, we're involved in processes. But like, I mean, that the gift of a novel like Carpentaria is like the country's big. It's bigger than us. Um, it will make its own decisions, um, you know, try not to kind of mess it up too much, but like it's bigger than you. Um, and, you know, just show a bit of um, deference to it. Uh, that's probably the that's probably the key thing. And and I guess the, some of the language that's kind of emerged around that is just around like custodianship. Like these are custodians of the land. Uh, just sort of makes sense that you know I can I can go over to your house. Um, I can appreciate it. I can not feel guilty because you've invited me in and whatever. Um, but it's your house, so um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I think. Uh... <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I'm living there too now, so like, <laughs> I definitely think deference is appropriate. But it's like, and there's a different kind of love and attachment. That's all I feel like. I don't know. It could feel yeah. a bit too. It could be a bit too selling yourself your involvement. In it. Like, let me put it this way: you you want to get the people on board who might be at risk of finding that off-putting. I feel like you know what I mean. Like, you don't want to make it so. Ah, oh, if you fully appreciate this, that means you don't get to feel comfortable ever in this land because you're not meant to be here. Like, and that's kind of, that's why I kind of push back against that as an idea. Even if, even if there might be some truth to it in some weird way, I feel like it's not, I don't, I, I think there's other ways to look at it as well. Cause that, that's kind of where I'm coming from when I say, oh, I don't know if we should phrase things totally like that because. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I had to, um, I didn't have to, but after I wrote my book about the wheat belt, I, I went out to the wheat belt and, you know, g- gave talks in all the wheat belt towns and, and not everything I said was um, flattering, really, or it wasn't like um, a big. I mean, all the wheat belt shires in in the sort of sort of uh, you know had these their histories they'd written about themselves and quite cel- celebratory, and, and and mine wasn't exactly like that. And yeah, I wondered how that would go down, you know. Um, but yeah, people. Were, were okay, you know that they, they they did take issue with some things, but um, I mean that's what again that's why I think why literature is important because it's just it, 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 it speaks to a certain kind of truth. Uh, we just have to look at that truth. I mean, what we do with that is kind of you know up for debate. But first of all, just got to see how things are, and I think literature has that capacity to just sort of show something. Like it is, it is the case that for you to have your farm, you had to destroy, uh, you know. A kind of an ecosystem which had been there for millions of years. Um, many of those species are now extinct and will never live again. Um, how do I, how do you balance that up against uh, the fact that you've got a farm? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I did have people coming to me after I give these talks, and that and they'd effectively be asking me, Tony, um, was it worth it? And I'll be like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know if it's worth it or not. But um, that's what happened. That's where we are. Yeah. It's true. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just put the whole guilty thing is sometimes uh, can be overplayed. That's all. But I get what you mean. I definitely do get what you mean about you got to at least acknowledge what actually happened, though, um, as part of whatever you're talking about. But you still don't have to feel adrift as a person just because that is part of your history, I guess, is my. Think about that. I don't know. It's a complicated thing, which we're not going to be able to cover in <laughs> this yeah. kind of podcast. Um, that does, but I feel like we should probably call it there. Um, we've kind of jumped all around the place, but this has been as 
kind of literary as I hoped it would be. So thank you very much for that, Tony. Um, is, uh, is there anything you want to give a shout out to, I guess, before I close off? Anything at all? No, that's that's good. Uh, yeah, I, I apologize. I probably did. Um, I jumped all over the place and, uh, you know. Uh, but certainly, I, I guess, uh, just on your last point, no, I definitely don't want, I'm not tr- I'm not trading in guilt and I don't like it and I don't, um, I don't see any real value in that, you know. I'm I kind of, I'm much more interested in truth um, and then we figure out the rest from there. Uh, so, yeah, I think, yeah, literature just has that capacity, I think, for saying things that can't be said otherwise and then what we do with it, you know, argue that out, out over a, a beer or whatever. Mm. No, that's a good point. Okay, cool. Uh, well, thanks very much for being on. Uh, yeah. No worries. Thanks for having me, George. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, Did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.